Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to chapter 14 of uh, 1 Corinthians. As Dave just read, we will be in verses 20 through 25. As you turn there, I want to talk about Romania, all right? Uh, Some of you may know this, some of you may not know this, but uh, the church that I was at prior to this, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Romania a handful of times. Uh, And then Parkway, whenever I came here, they actually had um, uh, some members who were uh, regularly leading trips over there. Uh, So that was kind of an interesting little thing that we we both had a love for Romania. And then since then, the Lord has brought a lot of uh, Romanians into our congregation. And so there are, you can hear them. There are uh, dozens of, uh, of people who are Romanian or married to a Romanian or, or something like that uh, who have been brought into our midst. And so one of my first trips over there was 2004. This was the, uh, the, the middle of the first SARS pandemic, and uh, we decided it's a good time to, to travel internationally. And so um, we went to Romania. Now, raise your hand if you've ever been on a mission trip, like an international mission trip. All right. One of the interesting things, you, you might know this, uh, about mission trips is there's always this guilt that you feel about spending money. Typically, you raise money to go on these trips, and, uh, and so uh, you feel really guilty, and you think the best way to be a good steward of that money is to stay in a subpar hotel and eat subpar food and take the very worst flights ever. For example, my, uh, uh, a trip to, uh, to Cambodia one time, uh, to save $100, I added four stops, all right? And so it took me over 40 hours to get to Cambodia, uh, including an eight-hour stay in Hong Kong where I had to get a hotel, which ended up costing more than $100. So not very smart, but uh, for this particular trip to, uh, to Romania, that was the case, all right? So you can get to Romania in about 15 or so hours, but not us, because we want to be really good stewards of, uh, of our money, and by that means bad stewards of our time. And so we took about a 25-hour route. We added a couple of stops in there uh, in order to save some money. And so by the time we get there uh, into Timisoara in uh, western Romania, Transylvania, for those uh, Dracula fans, uh, by the time we get there, we are absolutely exhausted. Obviously, you're flying uh, economy. If there was a worse class, then you would be flying that. And uh, so we get over there and we are exhausted. We land uh, and then we have to drive uh, over another hour in order to get to the city we're actually going. So we get there to the city and what awaits us is a church service. They're having a Sunday evening uh, service. And so we get there right in time for the beginning of the service and it begins with singing. So everyone stands up and we begin to sing. The only problem is I don't speak Romanian. And, uh, and so I can't really sing along. Occasionally there'd be a, a tune that I might uh, recognize, so I, I could sing in English. But most of the songs, I didn't recognize the tune, and so I just had to just kind of stand there. And then after this, they uh, call our uh, team up on stage, and uh, they ask to share an encouraging word. Now, unbeknownst to them, my buddy, who's a worship pastor, had spent the past couple of months learning a song in Romanian as a surprise uh, to them. And so uh, as an encouraging sort of word for them, he gets up on stage and he begins to sing, I Stand Amazed in the Presence of Jesus of Nazarene in Romanian. And so I'm looking around and I'm realizing no one is like singing along and no one's smiling, and, but every, everyone kind of looks like they're having a good time. And, uh, and so he finishes singing and uh, the translator who's sitting next to me turns to me and says, that was beautiful. Was that Hebrew? 
And uh, so apparently early 2000s AltaFish or Google Translate or whatever wasn't all that accurate. Had some bugs to be worked out. He thinks he's singing Romanian. They have no clue what he is, uh, what he's singing. But oh well, he sits down afterwards and, uh, and then the pastor comes up and he begins to preach. And so for the next 45 minutes, I don't understand a single word. That's actually not fair. I actually understood the word Nicodemus. So I assumed he's preaching from John 3, but that was the only word that I, actually, I could actually discern because I don't speak Romanian. I've been over there, I think, four times. Uh, I know like 20 words. Ten of them are counting to ten. Uh, and that's it. That's the extent of my knowledge. And my point is, obviously, I'm not edified. I'm not encouraged. I don't understand what's happening in that moment because I don't speak that language. Now, if you were paying attention when Dave read the text earlier, you probably see the relevance to our text uh, this morning. When it comes to the, the, the corporate gathering, when it comes to the church, when it comes to our collective worship, Paul says what is most central is edification, that which edifies, that which actually encourages uh, the body. Because if something is unintelligible, it's not edifying. And so that's what we're going to see as we get into the text today, especially as it relates to uh, the topic of, uh, of tongues. If you, don't, if you aren't edified um, by something, then uh, the body isn't being built up. And so let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. ask you first just to pray for yourself that the Lord would give you uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. And then would you pray collectively for this body, whether you're a member or not? Uh, would you pray for those around you that uh, we might be edified, that we might be built up as a church in fulfillment of, uh, of Paul's desire for the church? And then lastly, would you pray for me that my speech wouldn't be unintelligible, uh, but rather that it might be edifying and encouraging, and that we might uh, collectively uh, be encouraged. So, Father, we're grateful for your word. We trust that it uh, doesn't return to you void, and so we ask that you would use this word to conform us to the image of your Son, that you would make this church... Um, uh, to be more faithful, that we would be a people marked by humility and love that would seek to use the gifts that you give us, uh, not for our own exaltation, but uh, for the edification of others and for the glorification of your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start in 1 Corinthians 14, 20. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So before we get into this text in particular, let's back up and let's talk about the context. All right? Bear in mind that what we've been talking about over the past, uh, I don't know, couple of months or so, uh, in chapters 12 through 14, all of that is a one cohesive unit, and it's all dealing with the question of spiritual gifts. So we saw in chapter 12 that chapter 12 argues that each member of the body is given certain gifts 
that each member of the body is diverse, it's given certain gifts for the functioning and flourishing of the body. And so in chapter 12, we saw this imagery of both diversity of members, but also unity within one body. And then chapter 13 is going to specify that love should be the foundation and should be the fuel for all of our gifts. Whatever our gifts are, they should all be motivated by love. That's why, that's why uh, chapter 13 exists. And then in chapter 14, Paul has begun to deal with the question of the use of miraculous or sign gifts. All right, And from the, from the historical context, we can kind of piece together that something strange is happening in Corinth. That Corinth, the Corinthians, had a problem in their thinking about the gifts. Apparently, at least some of the Corinthians assumed that uh, giftedness uh, implied maturity. In particular, it seemed like the Corinthians thought that maturity was implied by the gift of tongues. They were obsessed with the gift of tongues in particular. For for the Corinthians, the tongues is is the absolute best gift. The other gifts that you might get from the Spirit are pretty cool, but tongues is beyond comparison for the Corinthians. Now, any time that we talk about miraculous gifts or sign gifts like tongues or prophecy or uh, gifts of healing or workings of miracle, any time that we talk about these sorts of miraculous or sign gifts, we need to recognize that there is this ongoing contemporary evangelical debate over the relevance and existence of those gifts today. In particular, does God still gift his people with these miraculous or uh, sign gifts? All right. We've mentioned this over the past couple of weeks. There, there are two camps as it relates to the discussion of the sign gifts today. All right, hopefully they're on the screen behind me. On one hand, you have cessationism. That is those who believe that the gifts have ceased. All right, on the other hand, you have continuationism, which is those who think that the gifts are still available or have continued. All right, so cessationists obviously believe that the gifts have, uh, have ceased. Uh, such that prophecy and tongues and gifts of healing and the workings of miracle are no longer applicable today. Now, just uh, for clarification, that doesn't mean that if you're a cessationist that you believe that God doesn't work miracles today or that God doesn't heal today. The question is not, does God work miracles or does God heal, whether you're a continuationist or a cessationist. Everyone is going to see, yes, he does do those things. The question is, do those gifts exists today. So there's a distinction to be maintained there. On the other hand, continuationists uh, obviously say that the gifts themselves have, uh, have continued. And we talked about the fact uh, before that within both of these camps, there is a whole lot of diversity. They're, those are not just positions uh, on, on a, a graph or something like that. Those are actually entire spectrums. There's a spectrum of continuationism and there's a spectrum of, uh, of cessationism, all right? For example, some continuationists would be described as kind of cautious continuationists. Um, They think that the gifts are possible, but they're maybe not all that normative, whereas others would be described more charismatically. And then you have even some, uh, like Pentecostals, who think that all Christians should speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian, or at least you're not a good uh, Christian. So there is a wide spectrum within both of these uh, camps. And we talked about before, to be a member of this church, you can hold to either continuationism or cessationism. All right? The elders don't think that this is an issue to divide over. In fact, the elders themselves hold dis- different positions. So that's all by way of review and uh, context. Let's look at our text today. 
All right, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. The first thing I want you to notice is that this is a command. Notice that do not be children in your thinking. That's a command. That's a divine mandate. Why is it that we make such a big deal out of theology here at Parkway? The reason is because God tells us to. Ignorance of God, ignorance of God's word isn't humble. It isn't faithful. That's actually arrogant. That's actually disobedient. There's this irony that exists in our culture today, especially as it's been influenced by postmodernism. There's this irony in our culture today that assumes that any sort of confidence that you have in God's word is arrogant. When in reality, the exact opposite is true. To be confident of yourself is arrogant, but to be confident in God and to be confident in his word, that's actually good and that's actually humble. All right. Now, I happen to be a continuationist, not for experiential reasons. I've never experienced any of the miraculous sign gifts. I've never personally experienced any of those things. But I am compelled by biblical theological arguments that there's more evidence for continuationism than cessationism. So I happen to be a continuationist. But I do find it interesting how anti-theological most of the modern charismatic movement tends to be. Within charismatic circles... Right? You find much more of a, a willingness to deny orthodox doctrines like the Trinity. You find much more of a willingness to deny things like original sin. Much more of an openness to like prosperity gospel. In fact, those things greatly uh, overlap, prosperity gospel and uh, charismatic theology. So this isn't true of all, but it's certainly more prevalent in charismatic camps. That There tends to be this anti-theological uh, uh, sort of bent. So I think this passage is actually a compelling rebuke of the spirit of a lot of the charismatic movement today. I think oftentimes there's an emphasis in the charismatic movement on sign gifts, on things like tongues and prophecy and healing. But the way that they uh, are going to uh, emphasize those things is to the exclusion of clear commands like this to think deeply and clearly about God, right? So most of the, uh, the, not all, but most of the charismatic movement, the modern charismatic movement, is atheological, if not uh, outright anti-theological. All right, Theological ignorance isn't just accepted in a lot of those camps. It's actually celebrated. It's seen as a virtue. There's this tendency to divide the head and uh, the heart as if that's kind of an either-or. You can either love God with your head or you can love him with your heart. What's the problem with that? What does Jesus tell us to do? Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all of your strength. We can't divide those. We can't divorce those. So notice this command. Whether you're a continuationist or a cessationist, you should have a deep and rich understanding of the counsel of God. He says you shouldn't be children in your thinking. Now, what does Paul mean by this? What does it mean to think like a child? He's already used this imagery of children a number of times in 1 Corinthians. The last time we saw it, was in uh, chapter 13, verse 11, where he said, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So what does it mean to think like a child? It could actually mean a couple of things. The first way is probably just kind of the surface way that we would all uh, read it, and that's just kind of recognizing that children, no offense, but children are often not as capable of deep, logical thought. Right? Unless your kid is Doogie Howser. And I don't realize that is a very dated reference that Tim and Jared are going to make fun of me for. But unless your kid is some sort of a savant or something like that, 
then they're probably not doing all that much complex thinking at the age of four. So that's one way that thinking like a child could be uh, kind of viewed. But there's there's also something else, I think, below the surface of the illustration of thinking like a child. When we take into account the context of Corinth, right? what are the Corinthians doing really throughout the entire book? They're looking at themselves in a very narcissistic, self-serving, self-exalting manner. And especially as it relates to the gifts, they're all about using the gifts in a way that actually exalts themselves. Right? Now, does that remind you of children at all? right? What's the instinctual posture of a child? Right? They tend to interrupt they might yell, Mommy, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me. Right? They haven't yet learned how socially awkward and inappropriate it is to make everything about themselves. Right? So maybe that nuance is also in Paul's mind. Not only can children not reason as well as adults, but their thinking tends to be marked by more of an overt, uh, immature selfishness, which corresponds to what's happening there in Corinth. So Paul says, don't be like children. But then he's going to clarify. He says to be infants in evil, but not in thinking. Now, in order to understand this, we need to remember something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the importance of knowing when you come to some sort of analogy in Scripture, knowing where the analogy actually applies and where it doesn't. For instance, when Scripture says that God is a rock, does that mean that God is really heavy? Does that mean that God is really dense and hard? No, right? What does it mean? To, to, to draw the analogy there is to miss the point. God isn't physical in any sense. What's the point of the analogy? Well, that he's safe, that he's strong, that he's secure, and, uh, and so forth. So when it comes to our passage and th- when it comes to this issue of, of being infants in regards to doing evil, we need to be careful in how we interpret that image. There are at least two different ways that someone could misapply, misunderstand the analogy that Paul intends here when it comes to childhood. The first one is to take this image when he says, be infants in evil, and to use that to inform our hamartiology. What is hamartiology? That's the doctrine of what? Sin, the, the doctrine of sin. From hamartia, the Greek word for sin. So to think that when Paul says to be infants in evil, what he means is that infants are innocent of sin. All right, that's an ancient heretical view associated with a guy named Pelagius. Right? He's a bad guy. There you go. You can boo him. Pelagius taught that people are born morally neutral. All right? The church has universally rejected that idea. Whether you're a Calvinist or a Minion, whatever side of the camp you're on, you have uh, rejected that idea. That is seen as a heresy. The church has universally confessed that mankind is sinful by birth from nature, or from birth by uh, nature. So it would be wrong to think that Paul is saying that infants are innocent of original sin. That's not the point of the analogy. A second way that you could misunderstand the analogy is to think that Paul's point here is that speaking in tongues is immature and childish. Right? That view would be really hard to square with what we read last week about Paul thinking speaking in tongues is generally good. He says doing so without interpretation or without consideration of others is immature, but tongues themselves aren't a sign of immaturity. In fact, he says, I wish everyone spoke in uh, tongues. So those are two potential misapplications of the analogy. So if that isn't Paul's point, what is his point? Well, quite simply, 
when it comes to thinking about God and when it comes to thinking about the gifts of the Spirit, we should not be infants. We should not be immature. Rather, we should be mature. And by that, he means that we should think rightly. We should think clearly about God and his gifts. And so how do you go about thinking rightly? How do you go about thinking maturely about the gifts? Well, the answer is by thinking biblically, which is why Paul is going to quote the Bible in the next verse. Look at verse 21. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, that might seem like a strange kind of quotation for Paul to seemingly pull out of thin air. The quotation itself is from uh, Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. And one of the things you need to know is that when New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, oftentimes they aren't just intending to make their point from that individual verse. Sometimes the point of the quotation is actually dependent on the larger context of the Old Testament text. So if you want to understand why an author quotes a particular verse, you need to not just read that verse, but you also need to understand the original context and not just read the the words of the quotation itself. And that's certainly the case with this reference to Isaiah. If you want to know why Paul is going to quote Isaiah 28, 11 to 12, you can't just read verses 11 through 12. You need to understand the larger context of Isaiah chapter 28. What's happening in Isaiah's day? Isaiah and other prophets, Isaiah and other prophets are speaking. They're speaking to Israel, and they are speaking words of encouragement or words of confrontation. They are telling Israel that they need to repent and they need to rest in the Lord. And their speech is very clear. It's very unambiguous. It is intelligible speech. They are giving a prophetic word to Israel that they need to rest in the Lord and they need to repent. But unfortunately, as we see throughout Israel's history, Israel is unwilling to listen to that prophetic word. They actually think that it's naive to rest in the Lord. In fact, there's actually a, a, a little kind of an inside joke in the Hebrew that they actually are saying that Isaiah is being childish for calling the people of the Lord to trust in Yahweh. So that kind of plays into why Paul has just talked about being childish and so forth. And so the, the people of Israel say, Isaiah, you're being childish to tell us to just trust in the Lord and to not make uh, treaties with other nations or whatever it might be. So basically... What Paul, or I'm sorry, what Yahweh says, what God says in Isaiah 28 is basically this. Okay, if you refuse to listen to these clear words from Isaiah, if you, if you refuse to listen to this prophetic encouragement in clear speech, then you can listen to my words of judgment by means of a foreign tongue. He's going to use the barbaric language of the Assyrian army. If you won't listen to Isaiah's clear prophetic words, then you can listen to Assyria's unclear speech of judgment. And that judgment is actually a fulfillment of a previous prophetic expectation. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, this is a section that's dealing with blessings for covenantal faithfulness and curses for covenantal disobedience as Israel is on the cusp of entering into the promised land. This is kind of the final word to the nation. And uh, and so uh, Yahweh declares that he will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. Notice this next phrase, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy 
to the young. So now you see at least two places in the Old Testament where foreign speech is viewed as a sign not of blessing, but of judgment. Can you think of any other? Where's a place where God curses people with foreign speech? Yeah, the, the Tower of Babel, right? God curses the world with various languages. That doesn't mean that it's a curse today to speak another language or something like that. Certainly not English. Uh, and, uh, and so that's not the meaning. In the context of Babel, the multiplicity of speech, though, is, a, is not a blessing. It's a curse. So the Old Testament is full of this motif of uh, Israel seeing these foreign languages as being a curse, a sign of God's judgment. Even in the New Testament, you actually see something like this. Think of the day of Pentecost. Right, what's the sign that accompanies the giving of the Spirit? Tongues of fire descend upon the disciples, and people are hearing the gospel in other languages. Now that is a blessing to the church, but there's also a bit of a curse going on there because what's happening in the book of Acts is the realization of this prophetic expectation that the kingdom is going to be taken away from Israel and it's going to be given to the church. You remember how often Jesus talks about this sort of idea, that a vineyard is going to be taken away from unfaithful tenants and it's going to be given to other workers of a harvest. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. And its beginning is signified at Pentecost, that God is going to no longer confine himself to one nation and to one language. Rather, Pentecost is this sign of the spread, the universality of the gospel. And in that, that's actually a judgment on Israel. So in summary, why Paul quotes this is because the Bible often equates tongues not just with blessings, but also with a curse. So Paul is going to quote Isaiah to demonstrate the point and to show that at least an Old Testament context where tongues is distinguished from prophecy. All right, Isaiah's prophecy was intended to be a blessing to God's people, whereas tongues in the context of Isaiah was a sign of judgment. So prophecy builds up the body in a way that tongues do not. And then in verse 22, he'll explain the implications of that. He says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, this might not seem like it on first reading, reading, but this is actually one of the most difficult verses in all of 1 Corinthians. We've made a joke about this before when multiple sermons now we've had to say, this is one of the most difficult verses in 1 Corinthians because a lot of 1 Corinthians is is, uh, difficult. So why is this so difficult? The reason it's so difficult is because on the surface... Uh, it, it, uh, it seems to be saying the exact opposite of what we might expect. In the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying that unbelievers are put off by tongues, but then he says that tongues are actually a sign for unbelievers. So how does that work? If, if unbelievers are actually turned off by tongues, then how are they a sign for unbelievers? And then he'll go on to say that prophecy actually can serve an evangelistic purpose toward outsiders, But he says that prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but rather for believers. So what's going on? Understanding that depends on what we think Paul means by the word sign. Sometimes in Scripture, the word sign has a positive effect or nuance. Other times it has a negative nuance. And I think this negative nuance that is suggested here uh, when talking about tongues, as pastor theologian Sam Storms writes, one way in which God brings punishment on people for their unbelief is by speaking to them in an unintelligible 
language. Speech that cannot be understood is one way that God displays his anger. Incomprehensible language will not guide or instruct or lead to faith and repentance, but only confuse and destroy. So last week when Jared was preaching, uh, we saw one reason that, fall, uh, that, that Paul isn't a fan of uninterpreted tongues in the corporate gathering of the church. He said that God's people aren't edified by, that, uh, by language that they can't understand. God reveals himself by means of words. That's how God chooses to reveal himself. And so when those words are unintelligible, there's no communication. There's no communication of truth or grace or the gospel. So that's the first reason that Paul's not a fan of uninterpreted tongues in the gathering, because they don't edify the body. Think again of the Tower of Babel. In the story of the Tower of Babel, what happens... Once people start talking in diverse languages, the building ceases. Why does the building cease? Because you can't build something together if you don't speak the same language, right? That's like tongues in the church. That's the analogy there. The church isn't being edified. The church isn't being built up whenever there is this multiplicity of language within that context. Imagine that you get something from Ikea or something. You find all of the instructions are in Swedish, Right? Unless you happen to be a Swede, that's not edifying to you. That's not encouraging to you. You don't know how to put together that particular thing. Your ability to build that piece of furniture is going to be limited. So that's the first reason that Paul isn't a fan of uninterpreted tongues in the corporate gathering. It doesn't contribute to the building up of the body. But today we're actually going to see a second reason that he's not a fan of uninterpreted tongues in the corporate gathering, which is that uninterpreted tongues don't serve the purpose of evangelism. In fact, they have the opposite effect. Rather than drawing outsiders in to the church, they actually drive them away. There's no understanding that takes place and thus no opportunity for the seed of the gospel to take root. As commentator David Garland writes, not only do tongues not edify believers, but also they are a sign of the alienation of unbelievers that cements their unbelief. Tongues being unintelligible cannot convince outsiders of the truth of the gospel. As an illustration of this, I want you to think for a second about the phenomenon known as uh, hoarding. All right? Any of you know any hoarders? You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe it's like your husband and you're like, I don't want to throw him under the bus or whatever. Now's the time to do it, though. You can be honest. All right? Uh, true story. One of our staff members uh, actually has a close relative who was on the show, Hoarders. I won't tell you which one it, uh, it was, but uh, you can go watch all of Hoarders and then you'll know. All right, so what's the deal with hoarding, all right? Is hoarding good or bad? All right, bad, all right? Why? Why is hoarding bad? Well, not only is it, uh, is it unhealthy for your own family, it's terribly unhygienic. So it's, it's really unhealthy for those who live in that house, but it's also really discomforting for any visitors, right? If you show up at someone's house and they're a hoarder and it smells like cat urine or something like that, that's not encouraging, to me, that's not a, that's like, you know, no one ever, when they get their car washed, asks for cat urine smell or something like that. That's not good, all right? So it's a, it's a turnoff for anybody who comes in uh, to the church. And that's what Paul says. That's like uninterpreted tongues in the corporate gathering. It doesn't edify the family of God. It's not hygienic. It's not good for those who live in the house, who are part of the church. But it's also really uncomfortable and confusing for guests. So tongues serve as this means of judgment for unbelievers. 
They confuse rather than comfort or even confront, right? The unbeliever is going to be hardened in his or her sin rather than brought to repentance, right? That's what Paul is saying about tongues in the gathered assembly. Remember, Paul isn't against tongues. He likes tongues. He's pro-tongue. He said last week that he would want for everyone to speak in tongues. But he's against this Corinthian exaltation of tongues and the public use of tongues in a way that tears down rather than builds up the body. So that's tongues. What about prophecy? How is that a sign for believers? Well, prophecy is a means whereby God convicts and confronts his people. I think even of Old Testament prophecy, it has that effect. What are the, what are the prophets constantly doing throughout the Old Testament? They're constantly calling God's people to repentance. By the way, not just God's people. They're also calling outsiders as well, although it's not as common. Consider the story of Jonah, his prophecy to bring Nineveh to repentance. So prophecy not only edifies the body, but it also serves as a means of evangelizing those outside the covenant community. And this contrast between the effects of tongues and the effects of prophecy in the corporate gathering will be continued in the next few verses. So let's look at those. Let's start with verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So now we have Paul explaining how tongues function as a sign for unbelievers. By the way, this, this passage, just kind of as an aside, this is not the main point, but, but, but this passage really is helpful for the church to, uh, to enable us to avoid these two twin dangers in thinking about the question of the presence of unbelievers or the presence of outsiders in the context of the gathering of the church. To understand those two dangers, we need to remember what the church is. The church, by definition, it isn't a building. This building isn't the church. The church, by definition, isn't a 501c3 organization. It isn't a country club or something like that. The church, by definition, is an assembly. That's what the word ecclesia means. It's an assembly. It's a, it's a body. And a body is composed of various members. The church is the gathering of the people of God, which means, by definition, the church should be geared towards the edification of the body. But that's primary. The church is the gathering of believers, and therefore the gathering of the church is primarily for believers, primarily for members of the body. Why is that important? Well, because when it comes to thinking about the relationship of unbelievers and outsiders to the church, to the gathering, to the assembly, when it comes to the question of understanding how do they fit, there are these two dangers, these two mistakes, these two extremes that we need to avoid. The first one is being overly concerned with appealing to and appeasing outsiders and unbelievers, right? This is probably the predominant uh, error of most of evangelicalism today. You have this in a lot of the more seeker-oriented churches where they kind of water down the sermons, kind of give it, give it the lowest common denominator, and, uh, and then they spend these exorbitant resources trying to please unbelievers and, and please outsiders. So that's one extreme. You can be overly concerned. But on the other hand, especially much more conservative churches tend to swing the pendulum the other way and to be underly concerned. So this is probably more of a danger for those in our particular part of the theological spectrum as we're very theologically conservative, right? And that is that you're underly concerned with the presence of unbelievers and outsiders, right? The primary purpose of a sermon is edification, not evangelism. But that doesn't mean the fact that the, it's the primary purpose doesn't mean that evangelism is irrelevant. It just isn't primary. 
It's secondary. But this passage helps us to see that it's nonetheless important. All right? I don't think that a church should focus all of their Sunday gathering efforts on reaching the lost. But neither do I think that they should turn a blind eye. Right? Paul says in verse 23, we should have some concern for the outsiders who might gather with us. If nothing about your service is strange or uncomfortable to an unbeliever or to an outsider, that's probably not a good sign. It's probably not, uh, not an indication of faithfulness on your part. But on the other hand, if the obstacle for understanding is too high, that's not a good thing either. So Paul is going to present this hypothetical example to support his argument that uninterpreted tongues are not beneficial to the gathering. In this example, the whole church is gathered together and everyone is speaking in tongues. Again, this is just hypothetical. Paul has clearly stated in chapter 12, not everyone even has the gift of tongues. And then in later passages, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, he'll restrict the use of, uh, of the gift of tongues even further by saying that only one or two should speak. But in this hypothetical, everyone is chattering away. And what's the effect? Well, Paul says that unbelievers don't think that that's cool. In fact, they don't even think it's neutral. Rather, they think you're out of your minds. Right? That phrase, out of your minds, is actually where we get the English word manic. Now, by this out-of-your-minds language, Paul can mean uh, one of two things. First, the normal surface sort of reading, the way that we would normally read it, everyone speaking in tongues, so unbelievers and outsiders just think, man, those people are crazy. I don't understand them at all. But there's another something below the surface a second potential interpretation when you consider the historical context. And that is, in the ancient world, uh, there were a number of uh, what were called mystery religions, these pagan mystery religions. And as part of many of their worship services, they would kind of whip their uh, adherents into a frenzy. So there would be this commotion, there would be this chaos, there would be uh, this frenzy that's taking place there in their worship services. So it's possible that Paul might be alluding to that practice and he might be saying that unbelievers who come in, outsiders who come in, and they see all this chaos, they see all this commotion, everyone's speaking in tongues, and they conclude that the church and Christianity is just another of these myriad uh, mystery religions, just another consumer option in a pluralistic religious market, as one commentator has said. Now, whether or not Paul was actually alluding uh, to that sort of uh, historical context or not, the implication is the same, which is that the re response of unbelievers and outsiders is not positive. It's not even neutral. It is decidedly negative. This reminds me of some hyper-charismatic churches today that practice snake handling. You familiar with this practice? Based on a, uh, a misapplication of a text in Mark, by the way, a verse that isn't actually even in the original manuscript of Mark, Thus, it isn't even a part of our Bible. But based on a misapplication of a text that isn't actually in the Bible, some super charismatic churches think that church services should include snake handling. All right? And their sort of idea is that if outsiders, if unbelievers come into the church, they will be amazed. All right? They'll be amazed that, that, a, that a preacher is holding a rattlesnake. They'll be overwhelmed by the glory of God, and they'll repent, and they'll be saved. I watched a documentary uh, recently about one of these churches and uh, the quote-unquote pastor was bit by a rattlesnake on the ear. Within a couple of minutes, he's sweating, he's throwing up on stage, and then he passes out, right? Right before he says, cut the cameras on the documentary. Now think about that for a second. If you're an outsider, if you're an unbeliever, 
and you show up to a church and they're passing around water moccasins, are you encouraged? Right? No, unless you're a herpetologist or something like that. You're kind of freaked out. You're running for the door. You're not hitting your face or, or, or your, your knees. You're not, uh, you know, prostrating yourself before the Lord or something like that. Uh, you're not going to try this Christianity thing out. By the way, this pastor actually survived, uh, but his dad was killed a year earlier by a rattlesnake in a church service, right? Sometimes bad theology literally kills you. So if you're, um, if you're at one of these churches, you don't think Christians are so awesome, right? You think they're crazy. They're out of their minds. Not only does it not really edify those inside the church, but it drives away those outside the church. And that's a big problem. If you recall, all the way back in chapter 9, Paul's evangelistic maxim, right? his slogan. Remember, Paul's controlling passion in life is to restrict his rights, to give up his liberties, to give up his freedoms, to what end? He says, so that I might share the gospel with all in order that some might be saved. So for a church, corporately, or for an individual individually, to emphasize their rights or to exercise their gifts at the expense of others is a violation of Paul's highest command or or highest passion and also Christ's example and command. And that's what uninterpreted corporate tongues is. All right? It's a chance for you to show off your gifts at the expense of others, both inside and outside the church. So that's tongues. What about prophecy? Well, Paul says prophecy has a different effect. Look at verses 24 through 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to count by all. All the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So again, Paul gives this hypothetical illustration, all right? This time of a church in which everyone is prophesying. Again, this doesn't mean that everyone can prophesy. It's just a scenario. We dealt with prophecy a bit last week, and it's important to recognize that what is meant by prophecy is really disputed among theologians. How you actually define the gift of prophecy is going to, uh, uh, to be pretty diverse uh, across the, uh, the theological spectrum. Part of the confusion comes from the fact that we actually see so many different nuances or forms or types of prophecy in Scripture. Uh, for instance, at times, prophecy involves telling the future. That's probably kind of the most well-known function of prophecy. When we think of prophecy, especially in the Christmas season, we think of the prophetic foretelling of, uh, of Jesus, uh, his birth, and, uh, and so forth. And so that's what most people think of prophecy. They think just telling the future. That's not actually the only type of prophecy. In fact, this might be surprising for some of you, that actually isn't even the most common form of prophecy. All right? Rather, most prophecy, even in the Old Testament, wasn't telling the future. It was actually telling the present. Speaking God's word of encouragement or God's word of confrontation or judgment or whatever it might be into uh, God's people. And you see that all over the Old Testament so, so, so prophecy is this, is this really broad category. That's why last week we offered what was honestly a really generic definition of prophecy. It was intentionally generic because that's what we have to do if we want to actually fit all of the different nuances of prophecy uh, into the definition. And so we said prophecy is basically just supernatural insight into a situation. Supernatural insight 
into a situation. That, that situation could be the future. It could be a current event. It could even be some sort of hidden sin, as when Nathan the prophet knows that David has committed adultery, or when Peter knows that Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit. And then depending on whether you're a continuationist or a cessationist, uh, depending on which one of those, where you kind of land, you also would then dispute the degree to which prophecy is infallible and authoritative. All right? Cessationists typically believe, this is a huge platform for cessationism, cessationists typically believe that prophecy is authoritative. Because certainly when the Old Testament prophets spoke, it was authoritative. And so they would say New Testament prophecy is like Old Testament prophecy, and thus they would say that uh, modern prophecy would compromise the doctrine of sola scriptura, would compromise the doctrine of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And so they would say that that gift has ceased because if you were to, to claim that it continues, that would, be, uh, that would cause some huge problems for your doctrine of Scripture. So the cessationists would say prophecy is infallible and it's authoritative, therefore it doesn't exist today. Continuationists, on the other hand, would say it's not infallible and it's not always authoritative, and, uh, and so they would say that it uh, continues today. We talked about that a little bit last week, so you can go back and, uh, and listen to that if you want to know some of those reasons. Regardless, that's not the point of this passage, right? The point of this passage is simply to highlight the fact that an unbeliever or an outsider who comes into the gathering would have a dramatically different response to prophecy than they would to tongues. Whereas the response to tongues is uncertainty, it's confusion, they think you're out of your mind. The response to prophecy in this example is contrition and repentance. By the way, that's in line with the role of the Spirit in distributing gifts in the first place. Think back to the Gospels. When Jesus promises that the Spirit is going to come, what does he say the Spirit will do? Look at John 16, 8. And when he, that's the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So that's what's happening here in Paul's hypothetical example. Prophecy is being uh, viewed as this means whereby the Spirit brings about conviction to lead someone to repentance. There's an, uh, a, a, an interesting story uh, told by the, uh, the great Baptist prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Um, interestingly enough, Spurgeon actually considered himself a cessationist. He believed that the gifts had ceased. But at the same time, he had a number of experiences that would seem to mirror what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Spurgeon simply didn't label those as, uh, as prophecy. He called them something else. But he writes that a number of times while he was preaching, he was so brilliant that while he's preaching, his mind can also uh, think about individual people in the congregation. So while he's, he's preaching, he would uh, kind of have this uh, be made aware that someone in the congregation had stolen a particular pair of gloves or had cheated a customer out of a, out of a particular amount of money. And so he would mention that little detail in his sermon without mentioning a name. And then afterwards, a number of times this happened to him, a number of times afterwards, someone would come up in wonder and in tears, and they would say, that was me. The gloves that you described, those are the gloves that I stole. The amount that you said was cheated, I actually cheated someone of that this very week. So they would come up in, in, in wonder and in tears, and they would repent. And I think that sounds an awful lot like what Paul says prophecy could look like in a New Testament context. I don't think that Paul's point 
is that every time prophecy occurs, it necessarily gives some sort of specific personal insight into someone's heart. Or that every time prophecy occurs, unbelievers are get saved. Rather, he's simply providing this contrast with prophecy and tongues. Tongues don't edify, they don't encourage unbelievers, whereas prophecy has the possibility of doing so. So what's the point of this passage? What do we end up doing with this? At the the end of the day, the point of reading Scripture is not merely informational, it should be transformational. The point of this text isn't just to give you some sort of a theological grid for understanding continuationism and cessationism. The point of this text is that you might be more conformed to the image of Christ. It's transformational. You haven't really understood the meaning of the text until you've actually applied it. Part of the meaning of a text is in its application. That's how God's Word works, that meaning and application are uh, interwoven. So how do we apply this passage? And that's where it gets tricky because a lot of that depends on your particular theological perspective. From my vantage point as a continuationist, I think that one of the applications of this passage is that we should pursue prophecy. Not infallible, authoritative, thus saith the Lord sort of prophecy, but nevertheless supernatural insight into situations. I think that we should pray for the Spirit to help us, to bring to mind truths that we've already read in Scripture, to give us insight into things we might not be able to ascertain naturally, and so forth. One of the things I was really uh, convicted by personally as I was studying uh, the gifts this past summer to kind of uh, uh, re-prepare myself for chapters 12 through 14 is that I was re- as I was reading, I realized I'm, just, I was, uh, I'm a theoretical continuationist, but I'm a practical cessationist, right? I haven't experienced any of these gifts. I don't regularly pray for these gifts. I don't really do anything about it. I just think they continue, and that's kind of the extent of my continuationism. And a number of the books that I read helped me to see that that's the one logically inconsistent position that you can take. You could be a continuationist. You could be a cessationist. Each of those are logically consistent. But you can't be this sort of a theoretical continuationist doing nothing with it. Why not? Because Scripture explicitly says to desire prophecy. Right? That's a command. We saw that last week. Pursue love. 1 Corinthians 14.1, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So do you earnestly desire them? We'll see that again in a couple of weeks. 1 Corinthians 14.39, so brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. So you can think that the gifts are no longer available and thus that the command is no longer relevant but if you think that this command, uh, this gift is available, the one position you can't hold is the one that I held up until this summer is that I'm going to just ignore this command. So I think that's one of the main applications of this passage is that we should earnestly desire and pray for and seek supernatural insight into situations. A second application for those who are continuationists is if anyone has the gift of tongues, that they should, edify, uh, they should exercise it in a way that actually edifies the body and not simply for your own self-exaltation. That means, among other things, not to do it without interpretation. We'll talk about some of those uh, other things um, in a couple of weeks as well. Now, on a practical level, I just want to mention this. The elders, one of the things that the elders have determined as we talked about kind of how we were going to present this because we land in different places, we've, we've determined that neither tongues nor prophecy will play a part in our weekly worship service. This what happens here. 
prophecy and tongues, there's not going to be ever that sort of thing. There's not going to be a part of the service where now people speak in tongues or now people prophecy or something like that. If you uh, possess either of those gifts and you want to exercise them, you're welcome to do so according to biblical criteria, but you do so in other contexts. All right? This isn't the time and place where we think it's most edifying to the body. And that's really what's the point. That's, that's really the point of our gathering is so that we might build each other up. Why do we pray? Why do we sing? Why do we read? Why do we preach? Because that's what the elders in particular and really the church in general for all of her history has said is most edifying, most helpful, most encouraging. So that's what we're going to do in this context. We'll talk more about some of the principles of application as it relates to sign gifts in future week. But let's, uh, let's say you aren't convinced by the arguments for continuationism. Let's say that you are a cessationist. Do you just ignore this passage? And of course not, right? So how do you interpret and apply this passage? Well, I think that what you should do is you should look at this from a more macro sort of perspective, and you should bear in mind the overarching point of chapter 14, which is that you should pursue and that you should practice not just what you desire or what you like or what makes you comfortable or what's easy or what gets you a lot of attention and glory, but rather that you should pursue and practice what builds others up. In other words, don't lose sight when you're reading chapter 14 and all of these tricky questions about tongues and prophecy. Don't lose sight of chapter 13, the great love chapter. Right? When you read chapter 14, you should read it with chapter 13 in mind. That's why chapter 13 exists, so that we might have uh, our gifts tethered to love. There should be this instinctual response in our hearts and minds when we think about the gifts of the Spirit, whether those are miraculous gifts or those are seemingly mundane gifts like administration or hospitality or whatever. There should be this instinctual response when we think about the gifts that we should think about love. That should be like a word association. Right? When someone says ham and you say burger, when someone says peanut butter and you say jelly, when someone talks about the spiritual gifts, you should instinctually think about love. There should be like muscle memory for you. You should think, how, should I, how can I exercise this gift in a way that actually builds up others in love? That's true no matter where you fall on the theological uh, spectrum. Every single person in this room who has been born again unto faith in Christ has certain spiritual gifts. Everyone in this room has time, they have talents. They have opportunities to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others. So the question, really, as we read this text, is whether or not we're going to think like the Corinthians, whether we're going to think like the Corinthians, or we're going to think like Christ. Christ who is the embodiment of selflessness, the embodiment of sacrifice, the embodiment of love. In Christ, you have this beautiful picture of someone with all of the glory, all of the rights, all of the privileges, and he lays those down and he takes up a cross to love and to serve. And so he bids us to do likewise. And here's what's interesting. That's only possible if Christ is actually sufficient. A lot of what's happening in Corinth and a lot of what happens in our own hearts and our, in our churches as evangelicals and so forth, a lot of what we find is that we find our value and our identity in something other than Christ. We find it in ourselves and in our gifts and in our talents and so we have to look inward. We look inward for value and worth and dignity. And we look outward on others and say, look at us. And the reason is because we don't think Christ is sufficient. And so we have to prove ourselves. And the freeing thing is, if we realize that Christ is sufficient, 
then we're freed to be able to love and serve others. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for um, an opportunity for us to again be confronted by uh, the natural drift and inclination of our own hearts toward self-edification and self-exaltation and our own comfort and convenience and our own glory. And so I pray that you would make us more like Jesus and even more like Paul as, as he writes earlier in the book to imitate him as he imitates Christ, that we might be willing to lay down our privileges and lay down our rights and lay down our preferences and those sorts of things that we might serve one another and to love you, that we might seek to live life together in a way that actually edifies and builds up the body rather than tears it down. Just confess that we can't do this on our own apart from your grace, but you're a gracious God, and so we ask you to give it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.